right, if you will, brothers and sisters, open God's word with me now. Today we go to the book of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. To look at what I'm calling the weirdest parade ever. I wonder when the last time you've been to a parade was. Uh, Some of you, it it might have been the Christmas parade that we have here in Columbia. It's actually coming up. People are making preparations for it right now. Perhaps this week, many of you will watch a parade on TV, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, probably the most famous parade, at least in our country. I like to watch NBA basketball, and every year when a team wins the championship, they go back to their hometown, and they have a parade in the middle of the, the city streets, and bunch of people from the city come out to it. They shut down all kinds of roads and businesses and things like that. And wouldn't you know it, this week, this upcoming Wednesday actually, is the 60th anniversary of a parade of sorts where President John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas. That's the 60th anniversary of that this week. Now there are some very weird parades out there. Perhaps you've heard of some of these. In Southern California, the Port of Los Angeles every year, There's the Lobster Dog Parade. The Lobster Dog Parade is where people dress their dogs up like lobsters. And then they walk them down the street. I I think it's a lobster festival and then they just shoehorn dogs into it or something. In Sullivan County, New York, they have the Walk a Mile in Her Shoes Parade where men have to walk a mile wearing women's high heels. I think to, to raise awareness for like, you know, what you women go through and stuff wearing those shoes. If you'd like to have nightmares for years, you can go to the Parade of a Thousand Clowns in Vincennes, Indiana. Coney Island has the Mermaid Parade, and I know some of you have actually heard of Wilmore, Kentucky's Lawnmower Parade, where they turn their lawnmowers on and just walk them down the street. It's a, it's a thing. It's a real thing. But there are also, especially in recent decades, There are also parades that are wicked and evil, not just weird. In recent decades, it has become popular to have parades celebrating sin. We've seen some of those, I bet, on the news. But there has never been a parade like the one that we are going to look at in our text today. If you will, go to your Bibles with me, and we're going to read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Mark writes... Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. 
And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I want you to see this morning why this parade is so weird, why it's so odd. Number one, it's because of the way Jesus came, and one of the things that we see here is Jesus came in power. He came in power. Now, I want you to see at the very beginning of our text, Jesus' display of divine foreknowledge. He shows us that he knows things that are about to happen. He can see things that are going on that are not in his field of vision, that are apart from where they are at. And this is because Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh, and so he can do things that only God can do. He knows things that will happen before they happen. He sees things as they happen, even though he is not there physically around them. He, he tells his disciple, disciples, go into the town, and, and I want you to, to see that there's going to be a colt there that has never been ridden. You're going to find this, and when you find it, here's what you will say to people who will ask you what you are doing. I mean, it's amazing that things happen exactly the way that Jesus says. As we move in the book of Mark, as we move toward the crucifixion, Mark wants us to see that Jesus has everything under control. He's got everything under control. Last week in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, we saw Jesus predict his death for the third time in the book of Mark. Three times in the book of Mark, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. In Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10. He tells them because he knows. He knows what is going to happen. I will die. I will be put to death. I will be crucified. And he tells them, I will come back from the dead three days later. Here, he tells his disciples to go into town And here's exactly what you're going to find. And wouldn't you know it? That's what they find, exactly as he said. And when some question what they are doing, they give them the words that Jesus told them because Jesus knew that would be enough. The Lord has need of it. He will bring it back. That would be enough for those particular people who will question you. Jesus knew it to the exact detail. Jesus is not doing any of this at random. As we come through the book of Mark toward the crucifixion, He's not doing any of this at random. He is coming into Jerusalem on purpose, knowing that in five days' time from this very event, he will be killed. Five days' time from where we're at right here in Mark 11, he will be killed. He comes in power, displaying his ability to do things only God could do, including miracles. Did you notice the detail of the cult? The colt was a colt which no one had ever sat upon. And yet, as Jesus sits on it and rides it into town, and there is a huge crowd around him in a frenzy, shouting and doing all kinds of things, this unbroken colt is as calm as can be. Because the one on its back is not just its master. It's its creator. It's Lord. Jesus has everything under control. He is displaying his power. In fact, John's account of this event includes a very important detail on this note. This event, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's, it's recorded in all four of our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In John's account, John tells us why there was a crowd gathered to meet Jesus. 
You know, here in Mark, if you notice, it says, verse 9, those who went before him and those who were following him. Well, well, those are his disciples. We know that they are there with him, but there was more than just that. There was a crowd there shouting these things. We see that in the other accounts. And in John's gospel, we get this detail. John chapter 12, starting in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead had continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd, this crowd, went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so we see from John's account that a bunch of people are here, a bunch of people are gathered for Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem because they've heard, this man raises the dead. This man has a power that no one else has. This man is a miracle worker. This man might very well be the Messiah that we have all waited for and hoped for. You see, it's, it's a favorite quip of preachers that, that the crowds are so fickle. Preachers come to this text and they say, the same people who are shouting Hosanna one day are shouting crucify him just a week later. It's a favorite little quip of preachers, and that'll preach. But it doesn't really do justice to what the text tells us. It doesn't take into account what the text actually says. The people here who are shouting Hosanna, are not the same group of people that are there on that day when Jesus has his mock trial before Pilate. And they're shouting, crucify him. In their bloodlust, they're they're crying out for his, his death. It's not the same people. It's not the same crowd. These were people here who had heard of his power in raising Lazarus from the dead, along with his disciples and his apostles. In Luke's account... We read, actually, that many of the people shouting were his disciples. And, and I, I say those two words, disciples and apostles. I don't want you to get that confused. Jesus had 12 apostles. Sometimes we call them the disciples. Jesus had 12 apostles, 12 men that he handpicked to pass down what he knew to them. And he gave them abilities to do things that other people didn't have. But then he had disciples also. He had other people that followed him and that were around him quite a bit, other than his 12 apostles, men and women disciples that that followed him around. And so I don't want you to get confused on that. We've got apostles, we've got disciples, and in Luke's account, we read that many of these people shouting were his disciples. So this is not the same group that's shouting crucify him later in the week. It's a different group of people. And so I want you to see first, Jesus came in power. Second, I want you to see here, he came as a king. Jesus came as a king. Look at verse 10 with me. In verse 10 we read that people are saying, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. What does that mean? Why do they say that? Well, you see, God's promise in the Old Testament to David in 2 Samuel 7 was that David would never fail to have one from his line on the throne. That David's throne would extend forever. David's line would be the one through whom the Messiah came. God's forever king. That's the promise that God gave to David in the Old Testament. And so the crowd sees Jesus as this coming king. The crowds, they've heard of his, his miracle working abilities. This could be him. We believe, many of them believed it's him. This is the Messiah. This is the forever king that God promised us in the Old Testament. And what do they do? Notice what they do. 
They spread their cloaks on the road in front of him. And they put leafy branches down. This is where we get Palm Sunday from. It's this story right here. Palm Sunday is the the Sunday in the Christian calendar before Easter Sunday. Well, this is the Sunday before Jesus' death and resurrection. And many people believe these are palm branches they're, they're putting down. So they put cloaks down. They put branches down. What are they doing? They're rolling out the red carpet for him. That's what that is. They're rolling out the red carpet. They're trying to give him a king's welcome. In fact, as they do, they quote from the Old Testament in what they shout out. They quote Psalm 118, starting in verse 25, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. That word Hosanna actually means save us. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they're shouting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They believe this is God's forever king. Now, I want you to notice, as Jesus comes as a king, as he comes in power, notice how he receives the fanfare, and he doesn't tell them to be quiet. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't deflect. He receives it. He allows them to worship him and speak of him in this way. This is not what we have seen from Jesus up to this point in the book of Mark. This is different than what we've seen him do up to this point. In fact, listen to Luke's account, Luke chapter 19, verse 39. It says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The ones who are yelling at Jesus, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees hear this and they say, that's inappropriate. This is inappropriate to speak in this way and to shout this way of this man. Surely this rabbi, this teacher, will tell them to be quiet and tell them that it's inappropriate. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And in verse 40 it says, he answered, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If my disciples were silent, we'd have rocks that grew mouths and voices here. And you'd see inanimate objects praising me. The great irony is that Jesus says the rocks in creation recognize their maker, whereas the Pharisees, the religious leaders, don't. Jesus says if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. It is good and appropriate for them to do this. Notice the audacity of the claim Jesus is making here. And it would have been inappropriate, it would have been blasphemous for people to worship any man like this had it not been the Son of God. But Jesus, in perfect humility, not in pride, not in selfishness, in perfect humility, says, no, we're going to let them do that. It's very appropriate. Because Hosanna is exactly right. I have come as your king to save you. And so he came receiving the fanfare. He did not tell them to be quiet. Do you remember all the times in Mark that we've seen, if you've been with us on this this journey through the book of Mark, you remember all the times we've seen Jesus heal somebody and then say, don't spread the word. You remember that? All those interesting, surprising examples. He heals somebody and he says, don't tell people. Or, Or he tells his disciples, this is who I am. Peter says, yes, you're the son of God. And he says, don't tell people. Don't spread the word. Why? Why was he doing that? Well, we said over and over again, 
Jesus was saying those things because he didn't want to accelerate his death too quickly. He didn't want to start the ball rolling, if you will, or the chain of events too quickly toward his death. Jesus had many things that he had to do before he died. He had assignments from the Father, we read. And Jesus had to accomplish those things before his death. So he doesn't want to get there too quickly. He knows it's coming. And he knows once he starts doing certain things, it will, it will start the chain of events. He says over and over again in the book of John, his hour had not yet come. But here it has. This is a turning point in the book of Mark. His hour has come. And so he doesn't tell them to be quiet. He doesn't tell them to stop spreading the word. Because he knows This will lead to his death. And that's exactly what he came to do. So he he came in power. He came as a king. But also, and here's where it gets weird, he came humbly. This is the weirdest parade you're ever going to see because, yeah, he came as a king. Yeah, he came in power, those we would expect, but he came humbly. He came humbly. He came in a very different manner than anyone would expect. How would you expect a powerful king to ride into town, especially in the the most prominent city in that area in the world religiously at that time? How would you expect a conquering king, a powerful king to come into town? Well, here's how I would expect it to be. Anybody ever seen the movie Aladdin? You know where Aladdin comes into town and he's, he's pretending to be the prince and the genie's given him all this pomp and circumstance to impress the princess, right? That's how I would expect a king to come into town. We, we've, we've got singers, we've got dancers, we've got monkeys, we've got, I'm riding an elephant, I've got a big chariot. This is, this is how we come in as a king, right? This is how you do it. Jesus doesn't. He comes in riding on a donkey. What? Who, who is this king? And I wonder how many in the crowd were thinking back at that very moment to Zechariah chapter 9, where we read, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And then it says, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was even prophesied in the Old Testament that this is the way Jesus would come. In fact, it is not unreasonable to think that Jesus had read that verse many times and understood now, this moment, is the time when I am supposed to fulfill that. So boys, go get my colt. Go get my donkey. The donkey that was made for this very purpose. And bring it here because I'm about to fulfill Zechariah 9. Nine. This is exactly the way it was supposed to happen. And God knew and Jesus knew because they hatched this plan from eternity past. He came riding on a donkey. He did not come on a war horse or on a chariot. We would expect him to come like that. In fact, many of those people, I believe, expected the Messiah to come in that way. On a war horse, on a chariot, because we expect our Messiah to come and save us from the oppression of Rome. We're expecting him to come and and do war against Rome. We expect he's going to come and be a warrior, but he didn't. Psalm 20 verse 7 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Jesus did not come to make war on Rome. 
Don't misunderstand, though. He did come to do battle. He did come to do battle. Just not in the way that people expected. He did not come for a physical battle. Remember Ephesians 6? We do not battle against flesh and blood. We do not fight with physical weapons or physical armor. Jesus, at this moment, could have easily whipped up an insurrection and a big one. But that's not why he came. Why did he come? He came to die. Friends, he came to die. The great irony of this parade is, while the crowd is rejoicing and hopeful, Jesus is on a funeral march. Jesus is subdued. Jesus is not telling them to be quiet. He's not telling them their celebration is inappropriate. But he is marching to his funeral and he knows it. Hosanna means save us. Hosanna means save us. And that is exactly what he had come to do, just not in the way they expected. Jesus is riding to his death. He did not come to whip up an insurrection. He did not come to go to war against the Romans. He came to submit to death. That was the plan all along. Look at verse 11 with me in our text. Verse 11, this one stands out like a sore thumb to me, at least when I read this. It says, when he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What's Jesus doing here? I hope you can discern he's emotional. He's emotional here. He goes up into the temple. He realizes this is my last time in Jerusalem, at least before my death. He knows what's about to happen in five days. He, he comes into the temple. He's got a lot of memories there. Perhaps he's thinking back to that time when he got lost, when he was 12, and he was in the temple and his parents were already a, a couple days journey home when they realized he wasn't with them. He's got all kinds of memories of this place, this city, this temple. He's thinking back. He's, he's being nostalgic. Part of it is. I remember vividly my last day walking to class on the campus of the University of Kentucky. It was a, a surreal moment for me because that was a very formative four years of my life. I'd done that walk hundreds of times, but the last one, I, I took it slow. I left early. I was contemplative. I was sad in, in some ways. It was a big, formative four years of my life, but I, I tried to appreciate it. And it was a very surreal, emotional, nostalgic moment for me. Perhaps you've had moments like that in your own life. And so Jesus is feeling that. He's also feeling sad. He's feeling sad for the city, for the people of Jerusalem, because their Savior is here. God in the flesh is here, and they don't know it. They don't know it. Luke's account actually says he comes into the city and he weeps. He weeps over it. He's crying. Tears. And part of it, it says... He walks into the temple and he weeps knowing, we read this in the other accounts, knowing that in a few decades this temple will be destroyed. Jesus knows in 70 AD this temple that he's in right there will be destroyed. But he's also weeping for the hearts and for the souls of the people. He's weeping for them. Weeping for those who are about to reject him. Weeping for those who are about to put him to death. You see, one of the, the great applications for us as believers today here is this. Jesus does not rage at his enemies. He has compassion on them. He weeps for them. We are to do likewise. 
Jesus does not rage at his enemies. He has compassion on them. He weeps for them. Brothers and sisters, we are to do likewise. We are not to rage at those who persecute us as Christians. We are not to rage at those who belittle our values or try to outlaw them at times. No, we are to pray for them. We are to have compassion on them. We are even at times to weep for them and for the fact that they do not yet know the Lord and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus came to Jerusalem right here. He came to die. And brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus came to earth. We're about to enter the Christmas season. We're about to begin to celebrate the fact that Jesus came to earth, that God sent him. But why? Why did he come? Why did God send him? It was to save us. He came to die for our sins. See, Christians are those who have given their lives to this man to follow him because he gave up everything for us. That's what being a Christian is. We give our lives to this man because he gave everything for us. He gave up his glory in the way that he came to earth and became a human being. He gave up his tears. He gave up his blood. And he gave up his body and his very life. Friends, if, if some friend or family member of yours gave up their life for you, if they like, like took a bullet for you, or they shoved you out of the way of oncoming traffic and they died instead of you, you would spend the rest of your life honoring them, would you not? You would spend the rest of your life honoring that person. Let's just say it's not even giving a life. What if somebody gave you a kidney? They, they, they donated one of their kidneys so that you could have one that you needed. You would spend the rest of your life honoring that person. I'm here to tell you, Jesus has given you so much more. He's given you so much more than that. Not only has he died for you, but he took, in his death, he took the Father's wrath for your sin. That's something that no one can do for another person. Only Jesus could have done that. He took the Father's wrath for your sin so that you could have the opportunity to be forgiven and to be right with God if only you would take it. If only you would take it. Jesus' suffering and death is not just to say, this is how much I love you. It's to say, you have an opportunity through this to be forgiven of your sins through this through his death, you have an opportunity to be made right with God. All you have to do is come to him. All you have to do is accept it, to submit to him. But it does take the humility of obedience to the gospel, to the good news that you have just heard. What will you do with that good news? He came to die, and he came to die for you. Right now, I want to, to move us into a time of silent and reflective prayer. Each week here at Columbia Christian, we do this after we hear from the Lord. God speaks to us, and then we speak back to him. And so what these next few moments are is a time for every single one of us to pray individually and to respond to what the Lord has just laid upon our hearts. 
And so whatever that might be, we ask you, pour out your heart to God now. He spoke to you, now you speak to him. We give these few moments of individual prayer and then afterward we'll come back together and we'll have an invitation time where anyone who needs to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. Let's pray for a few moments.